Sometimes it feels like we are very distant from the cross. When I say that, I mean that in a handful of different ways. I mean, historically, it's been nearly 2,000 years since the event we celebrate tonight, the event that we acknowledge and point to. And so it's been a long time as the centuries trudge on, and we might feel like, man, it's so far away, it's kind of hard to internalize, hard to think about rightly. We're also far away geographically. We try to picture what it was like in that place. It's in a place so far away, many of us will never see it, never even have an idea of what that landscape even looks like and where all the stories take place. It's over there to many of us. It's also distant from us culturally. By that, I mean we talk about things in the Bible, particularly in the New Testament, around the time of Jesus' death, and we see a way that a world is lived out that looks very different than the way that we live things out. We're celebrating tonight somebody's execution. We live in the kind of world where that's very rare. You and I will probably never, ever, ever in our lives witness, visibly, an execution. Sometimes, if it's not just historically or geographically or even culturally, sometimes we feel spiritually distant from the cross. Maybe we're distracted by things. Maybe something gets in the way of our mind. Maybe the focus that the Christian life typically has pointing at this amazing event gets robbed thinking about other things. I think it's really helpful that God has established throughout even his Old Testament times and seasons, days of the week in which the people were supposed to pause and think about something specific. And while the celebration of Good Friday and Easter weekend are not commanded in the New Testament the way that the Old Covenant days were supposed to be celebrated and remembered, it is good for us to pause and look at this day and for us to have those times that we might take the energy and the effort to reconsider, center ourselves on that. And what's cool is we don't just do that right here, but literally right now in this valley, there are churches all over the place, Christian churches that are gathered together right at this very minute, remembering the same thing. And not just that, but all around the world, there are Christians on this very day who are joining us in that. When we had communion just a little bit ago, we don't just share that in a sense just with this local body, but we, in a sense, share that with the broader invisible church. And of course, not only now, but throughout the ages. We call this Good Friday. And perhaps every Good Friday sermon must spend at least a portion of its time trying to explain what is good about this Friday. I hope that the text we have today, Hebrews 10, verses 1 through 8, will help at least begin to answer that question for us. We're going to be in verses 1 through 18 this weekend. I'm going to get to about halfway through tonight, and then Sunday, we're going to wrap up the rest. So I'm going to read Hebrews 10, verses 1 through 18 out loud, as we usually do. I'm going to pray, and then we're going to go ahead and dive back into it together. If you have your Bibles open, you can follow along. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities... It can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered, since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins? But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. For it's impossible 
for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings, you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. When he said above, you have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings. These are offered according to the law. Then he added, behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. And by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us. For after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. Then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. Father, as we open this passage and we read through it, it's a weighty, weighty text, but it is also a beautiful, celebration-worthy text. I pray that you help me as I open this up tonight. Um, Father, I pray that it would lead us to a place that would please you and that it would serve us well as we are remembering Jesus' death today. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities... It can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Now, this is Hebrews chapter 10. The previous chapters have already sought to make it clear that the old covenant sacrificial system was a shadow of a greater reality. Hebrews 8.5 said something similar. Hebrews 8.5 says, They serve a copy and a shadow of the heavenly things. Have you ever endeavored to read through the Bible from beginning to end? Just, just from the beginning to, to the end, just Genesis to Revelation. I know many people have tried this. In fact, it's still kind of early in the year. You may have even started a plan to get through a portion of the Bible in the year. It's not uncommon for people in their way through that to hit somewhere around the middle of Exodus. Uh, <laughs> and the reason is because that's where we start seeing some of the richness, the depth, the details of the law of God. Starts with the Ten Commandments. We're all like, okay, I get those. I've seen them. And then it goes into the, starts to get the nitty gritty of the civil law. And it's immediately tied in with the sacrificial system in the Old Covenant. I know we've got kids with us in here today. When I say Old Covenant kids, I'm talking about the promise that God had made to his people in the Old Testament to the Israelites. In fact, we can kind of summarize that almost by, by looking at our Bible of the Old Testament and the New Testament. The Old Covenant, the New Covenant. God's promise to his people in the Old Testament and now his promise to people in the New Testament. There are a lot of specific instructions in the book of Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy on how the law was supposed to be executed, how it was supposed to be dealt with. Have you ever wondered, why, why did he give so much detail? My goodness, chapter after chapter after chapter after chapter of all the nitty-gritty detail. 
These specific instructions were meant to reflect something greater. They were a copy of the heavenly tabernacle. They were patterned after God's heavenly dwelling. They were a replica of something even more real. Or as the author says, they are not the true form. Not the true form of these realities. Now it is partly because of this that the law could never make people perfect. That's what the author tells us right here. That's what he's trying to get at. All these things were a shadow. They they weren't the ultimate reality. They were were not the true form. By the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year in that system, they could not make perfect those who draw near. To make perfect. The idea of being perfect here is complete, finalized, fulfilled, finished, to leave nothing remaining. In other words, even after offering a sacrifice, there was still something left incomplete. There was something outstanding. There was something not yet completely satisfied with that offering. So the question we might want to ask is, does that mean that the law was defective? So so God, God had the people, and he knew that they were going to sin, and so he wove into the law a way to deal with breaking the law. An expectation that they were going to follow. And when they did, this is what they'd have to do next. Because not, they're not going to follow it. So this is what has to happen next. But what, happened to ha- what ha- had to happen next, the sacrifices were not able to perfect the person. They were not able to ultimately, finally, and completely cleanse them. But this does not mean that the law was defective. It's not as though God sent us the cure for sin, but it's just not working right. That's because the law was never designed to make us perfect. It was never designed to be done and complete with the sacrifice of an animal in the Old Testament. So what was the law designed for? Romans 7, 7 says, If it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, You shall not covet. This is, this is just one place in the New Testament where we get a real quick summary of the purpose of the law. It was to identify for us. It was to show us our sinfulness. The law exposes the brokenness of our heart. And for the record, I actually think this is why Paul draws upon the 10th commandment there in that verse I just quoted. How would I know what it is to covet if the law didn't say not to covet? Because it is the least intuitive of all the Ten Commandments. It's the one that if you were to write them down, like these are things you certainly shouldn't do. That'd be really hard. How would you legislate against that? I, I, I think he might have coveted. Well, how do, you, how do you know? You know how a person, you know if a person murders or commits adultery. You know if a person steals. You know if they lie. How do you know? It's the least intuitive. And so he points to, listen, the law is established for a reason. It shows us our error. It points to the things that we might not have seen clearly or or fully. And even if we had seen them, we might have lied to ourselves about it. We might have been like, well, it's not really that big of a deal. It's not that big of a deal for me to covet in this case. We couldn't claim that once we read the law. We make poor judges. You and I are likely unaware of how often we sin against God, how often we break his law. And a few years back, I got one of those little uh, car diagnostic code readers, those little like, computer things you, you plug in under the dashboard of your car. And I got it to reset the, uh, the check engine light or to see why the check engine light was, was turning on and attach it to your phone with a little app. Well, 
one of the little features that this one had was that you could record data about your driving and at the end of a given week, it would give you a score. Tell you how good of a driver you are. I'll tell you what, my driving didn't change from the moment that I plugged that in. But I suddenly became aware of just how terrible my driving was. The law is kind of like that. It points to us. It points out the sin. Puts its finger on the issue. The law cannot make us perfect any more than an x-ray can make you well. It shows you the problem. And the fact that these sacrifices were offered repeatedly year after year after year. And that's just for the annual sacrifices. That was just for the Day of Atonement kind of sacrifice, the Passover kind of sacrifice. It was just for the individual annual ones, not to include the individual sin offerings that might be made all year long. They were offered repeatedly as a display of the fact that they were insufficient to make a person perfect. Verse 2 tells us, Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered, since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins? But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. Paul makes a logical argument. If a sacrifice under the Old Covenant was able to perfect the person offering, he or she would only have to do it once, and they'd be cleansed, and they could cease to offer. He wouldn't need to do that anymore because it would have been finalized. It would have made complete. It would have made fulfilled. But the fact is that they do continue to have consciousness of sins. In the Old Testament, animal sacrifices were able to, not able to permanently cleanse the sinner. And if they were permanently cleansed, then no more charges could be brought against them. A person would never have to do a sacrifice again. This is why he's pointing to this. The author is making this clear for us. Look, you, you, we know, even looking back at that system, you know there's something about it that's not going to satisfy. It's not going to be fully fulfilled and finalized in us. But in these sacrifices, there's a reminder of sins every year. People go back and forth and they do it again and again and again. Did, did, didn't we do this last year? Yeah, yeah, you did. You're still a sinner. It was to show them over and over again that they were sinners. Now, this actually does present a question we're not going to answer until Sunday. The question is, how are we not in the same predicament as these Old Testament Israelites if just like them, after our sacrifice has been offered, we continue to sin? Now what? Aren't we in the same place where we need to go sacrifice again and sacrifice again? Isn't that the same for us? And the answer is no. Well, I want to acknowledge that I think there's a question right here, but we'll get to that Sunday as we continue on with the text. But there's value in celebrating Good Friday. There's value in taking communion and remembering our sins. This should serve to help us see our need for the gospel. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. The church attendance good works, Bible reading, being in a good Bible study with friends, it can't take away sins. All of our works, all the things we can offer can't do that. So God, God might tell the Old Testament people, you need to sacrifice an animal. 
And he might tell us today, you need to live rightly. You need to walk worthy of the calling to which you've been called. But that's not going to take away your sins. This statement in verse 4 is a summary statement of the problem with the people's understanding of the old covenant sacrificial system. God required sacrifice, but he had something bigger in mind than the blood of bulls and goats. Since death is required as the wage for our sins and animals won't suffice, then we are in big trouble. That's what you should see getting to a place like this. Wait a second, wait a second. If that's impossible, then we're in big trouble. I think that's what the author of Hebrews is trying to press for his audience. That's right, yeah, you would be in big trouble. Enter Jesus. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. The author here quotes Psalm 40, verses 6 through 8. He actually quotes the Greek version of that Old Testament book. If you were to flip there in your, your, your Bible, you'd see the Hebrew version of that in English. He's quoting the Greek version of that. The wording is just slightly different. It has the same basic idea. He attributes these words not to the original author, the psalmist, not to David, but to Jesus. He attributes these words to Christ. And what does it mean here that when Christ came into the world, he said, sacrifices and offerings you've not desired. Wait a minute. What does it mean that God does not desire sacrifice? You know, there are other places in the Old Testament where similar statements are made. Because you might be thinking, like, like I, I would, so I'm reading through this. Wait a second, wait a second. God specifically commanded them. He put them in the law. He told people how to do this. You're telling me he put those in there, but he didn't desire for that to come about? I want to show you one place that might highlight this for us. Isaiah chapter 1, verses 11 through 13. The people had been fallen into sin. They've been wicked. They've been worshiping false gods. They've been doing all the things opposite to what the Bible commanded for them to do. And at the same time, they'd go and bring sacrifices. And they'd try to do the things that the rest of the law told them to do. And this is what God says through the prophet Isaiah. What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord? I've had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. When you come to appear before me, who has acquired of you this trampling of my courts? Bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. The mechanical rituals of sacrifice minus a heart for God was not merely ineffectual. It was abominable to God. You and I can understand how this plays out. The idea that a person might do a certain kind of work and not have any heart or love for God. What was the sacrifice supposed to point them to? Their sin. But there was no acknowledgement of sin. There was no turning from the sin. It was just, oh, time to pay the sacrifice. Imagine it kind of like this. What if near your work, you found a really great parking spot? That's kind of your spot. And then one day someone comes and paints a handicap 
accessible bunch of lines there and puts the sign in front. I think in Utah, it's like a $150 fine if you park in front of one of those. Let's just say you still really like that spot. And let's say you have enough money you could blow on it. You say, you know, I'm just going to park there. And every time I get a ticket, I'm just going to pay it and keep parking there. It could be said that every time you make good on paying a fine, you get the fine, you pay it off. It could be said that you are a citizen in good standing once the fine is paid off. But it would not be right to call you a good citizen. Consider the relationship between the heart and the actions, the obedience and the sacrifice. This is significant. The reason that God can call the sacrifices he demanded abominable is because the people thought they could just pay off God. Well, God, we did, we did some good stuff. We did what you said. We did it. Aren't we set? But you see, this is the way that so many people respond to things today. A lot of people reject God. They turn away from his laws. They say, we don't care what he says is right or wrong. We're going to do whatever we want to do. But don't forget the good thing I did, God. Doesn't that, doesn't that wipe it out? I did something good in there somewhere, and that's got to be good enough to cover up that sin. I'm in good standing before you. I'm okay. I'm a good citizen. This is not the way that God sees it. If a person were to offer up all of the required sacrifices and have in his heart no faith and no love for God, no desire for obedience, those offerings would not be acceptable to God. Likewise, if a person were to have a heart for God, this is the other side of this, think about this. If a person were to have a heart for God, repentant over their sins, desiring to obey God, he would still be required to offer a sacrifice. I'm going to show this to you because I think it would be helpful. Psalm 51, this is one of the most famous sins in the Old Testament where David steals the wife of a confidant, one of his 30 mighty men, Uriah the Hittite. The woman's name, of course, is Bathsheba, and he, he desires her. And so he sleeps with her, and then he sends the man away out to war, and he doesn't just send him to war. He literally conspires to have him killed to cover up the fact that Bathsheba was now pregnant. And after his sin was made known to him, and he was called out by the prophet Nathan sent by God to do so. One of the most repentant attitudes we see in the Bible is displayed. And David writes this psalm of his heartbrokenness for the sin that he had committed against God. He says, I sinned against you and you alone, he says earlier in Psalm 51. This is a really famous part of this passage because people point back to this oftentimes about God's desire, God's heart for us, even as sinners. David writes this, For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Many of us, right off the bat, we go, oh, amen, we, we get this. We know what this means. This is, this is Lord, I, I could go do something. I could just go try to, try to do something that I know. I know you said that it is right to be generous. So, okay, I sinned over here. I know, I'll go be generous over here. And that'll fix it. It'll satisfy that somehow. Even modern-day Jews actually point back to this verse, and they go, say, ha, we don't need sacrifice. They're very motivated to see no need for sacrifice today. Because they have no temple, they have no place to sacrifice. 
So they have to come up with new systems to decide. Ah, see, see right there. Whew, we don't have to sacrifice. But literally the very next two verses, he writes, do good to Zion and your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in right sacrifices, in burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. David got it. God desires obedience and sacrifice. Contrition, repentance, humility of heart must precede sacrifice, but it does not replace sacrifice. If sacrifice was not required, Jesus would not have needed to die. One of the reasons I think this is so important to point to and draw out is because we're so far, we're so far to the right of that day, Good Friday, the day this happened in the first century as Jesus hung on a cross. We're so, we're so far historically away from it. That's what I meant when I was intro. We're so far from that. It's hard for us to get our mind in what it was, must have been like for the Old Testament Jew, someone under the Old Covenant. What it must have been like to think about how we had to be made right before God. Sacrifice was required. That's why Jesus needed to die. God demanded there must be the shedding of blood. Death is the wage of sin. He continues on. When he said above, you have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings. He repeats all the same offerings that were just listed above there. And here's the commentary. These are offered according to the law. You know, Hebrews, you know, these are offered according to law. This is what God commanded. This is what he wanted to have there. When he said that, then he added, behold, I have come to do your will. He does, he does away with the first in order to establish the second. Jesus came into the world to do the will of the Father. Was it the will of the Father to forsake or rewrite or to delete the Old Covenant? No. It was his will to satisfy, to fulfill it in the sacrifice of his Son. He says this plainly in Isaiah 53, 10. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. Not only this, but Jesus didn't resist his Father's will in going to the cross. Luke 22 Tells us about Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane and he's, he's, he's feeling the weight of what's about to take place, the burden of carrying the sins of the world to the cross. And he says in verse 42, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. It was the will of the Lord to crush him. Jesus acknowledged it is your will. In performing his Father's will, Jesus fulfills, he satisfies the old covenant. And what is the result? He does away with the first in order to establish the second. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. Look at the in order to. Jesus fulfilled one covenant in order to offer a new one. 
He fulfilled the Old Covenant, the Old Testament, the sacrificial system, all those things. This is what the commentary is trying to give us on this passage. It's not that God said, time out, plan B, forget this. This whole thing is not working. we got to do a new plan. New plan. New plan. Forget the old one. Jesus came under that law. Jesus came in the time of those sacrifices. Jesus was offered as that sacrifice. You and I, think about this. You and I have neither perfect obedience nor sacrifice of none of ourselves. But Jesus satisfies both. He's come to do the will of his Father and offering himself up as a sacrifice. This is why the very next verse says, and by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. By that will, it's the will of the Father, it was his will that we'd be sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ. And not just through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ, but once for all. This is where we're going to pick up on Sunday, is this idea and why this is so significant for us. But we cannot be sanctified in any other way. You can't have peace with God apart from the sacrifice of Jesus. There's so many people in the world trying to deal with sin and are trying to figure out how to do that. Some just try to claim, well, there isn't sin. There isn't the trouble there. And they, they try to just shift around the blame. Well, maybe this is what the problem is. It's not sin. It's just the way things are. But we look to what God has established. We look to what God has said is right. And we see that we have sinned. We have fallen short of the glory of God. That there is no peace with God apart from blood sacrifice. And in this new covenant day, the only sacrifice that will suffice is that of Jesus. And this is why we call it Good Friday. The whole system was designed to point us to Jesus. You know, it's really hard for Christians today to read through the Old Testament without seeing Jesus on every page. Because we should. It was a replica of a greater reality, a true form. Jesus himself satisfies and shows us, demonstrates, displays the true form of sacrifice. I can imagine a child back in that day when he and his parents are getting ready to bring a, a lamb to sacrifice and they're going to bring it to the temple or the tabernacle, depending on the time of history. And they get things ready and the kids are saying, well, what? What are we doing here? He says, well, we've sinned. God tells us that because of our sin, we, we deserve to bear punishment. We have guilt. We have to be made right before him. And he's told us how to be made right before him. We must sacrifice an animal. We must pick one out of the flock that's blemish-free. We must pick one that's not tainted. We must pick a good one, a healthy, young. We must bring it. And we must lay that animal and it's life down before a priest, a high priest, ultimately on the corporate day atonement, this would be done, to show that the sin must be dealt with, must be punished. And I can imagine a child saying, and that will, that will fix it? A, a sheep? One thing that's so crazy is the Old Testament actually took into account that there were different people from different economic backgrounds, and it said if a person couldn't afford one, they could, they could get a smaller one or a littler one, and eventually down, all the way down the line, they could get turtle doves. 
They get pigeons. They could get all the way down. Little birds. They didn't have any money. God was, God was very gentle and generous with the, the people and wanting to just make clear that these sacrifices, whether it was a, whether it was a dove or a, a sheep or a bull or a ram, it was to point to something better than all of those things. It was the value of the life of the poor person less than the value of the life of the rich person? No. It's because all of those sacrifices were pointing to something ultimate and greater, pointing to our need for Jesus. Now, I remember I grew up in a Christian church, and so I got a chance to sit through Good Friday services from the time I was a little, little kid uh, all the way up to, to my young adult days and, and even now. Right now, I bring my little kids, and I've heard the stories about Jesus going to the cross. And I sat there, and I, I could internalize it. I knew the facts. I knew the details. And if someone were to, to quiz me, little Richie, so they used to call me. You can't, but they could used to. I'm just teasing What is significant about Good Friday? I'd say Jesus died. Why did Jesus die? For our sins. Why did anything have to die? Because sin produces death. And that's the wage of it. I, I, I bet you I could have told you those kinds of things. And I had to go in one ear and in one sense go out the other ear. And for year after year after year of hearing these things, I, I celebrated. I was part of it. But in another way, I was very distant from the reality of the cross. And I think in part because I just didn't understand the reality of my sin. There's some way in which the Old Testament peoples seeing the blood might have been helpful, an actual helpful picture. Some of you know, know what it's like to see an animal die and it breaks your heart. Some of you might have seen a person die and it breaks your heart more. You know that death is an image of what our sin ultimately has produced. One of the reasons I love having our kids in here for these times is I do want them to hear these things. I want them to go into the mind. I want it to be internalized. I want those to be, if there's nothing other than data, information, points of interest that someday will have provided a foundation, that will be sufficient. I'll be pleased that they were able to be here. But my heart on a night like this is that we would be able to press aside the distractions that keep us from seeing the reality of our need for Jesus. The entire new covenant is built upon the old and it points to almost part and parcel, piece for piece, the things of the old that have a fulfillment in Jesus Christ in the New Testament. Our sin deserves death. You and I look around, we see the world. Do you know what, that, you know what those sinful, wicked, foolish acts deserve? Death. And oftentimes you know this, you sense it in your heart. If there's a value in keeping your eye on what's going out in the world, if you're to draw something from it, let it be that we see the brokenness of the world and why it is that it was only by sacrifice that God's wrath could be satisfied. Jesus came, and on Good Friday, he was taken to a cross. He was the only person who could have been called blemish-free. You know, the New Testament uses that idea of being blemish-free and applies it to morality. It doesn't talk about just like there's not, he didn't have like a mole or something. It's, it's that he literally was perfect. He was untainted. He was obedient, fully. And it's why his sacrifice was able to be effective. 
He wasn't dying for his sins. He was dying for ours. Jesus bore sins on himself on the cross that God's wrath, that God's justice being satisfied would be taken care of in the bodily death of Jesus on the cross that you and I may be saved. My hope as we preach these things and continue on, we're, we're going to, on Sunday, I, I can't wait. I'm like dying for the sequel to this, part two, because of what we're going to see in the next several verses about what this means for our lives now because of Jesus' sacrifice. But if I were to have you walk away with one thing from tonight, it would be this. To have our mind reminded by our own sinfulness that is deserving of separation from God for forever, deserving of God's just wrath poured out on us, and that wrath being satisfied in the once and for all perfect sacrifice of his son, Jesus. Let's pray. Father, this evening, we are pointing to something that Christians have talked about for centuries and should, and that, Lord, until you return year after year, we will do this. Week after week of sharing communion together, of opening the word together in our homes, in our, in our church buildings, but Lord, the world doesn't know these things and it doesn't acknowledge these things. Father, to think about those in this very county who are seeking salvation apart from Jesus is heartbreaking. In fact, for many of us, it's so heartbreaking that we can only almost harden ourselves to that reality so that we don't become incapable of operating throughout our life and throughout our day. God, it is, it is debilitating to think of what's taking place around us. Lord, I pray that you would help us to be proclaimers of this truth, that sin deserves death, punishment, wrath, and that will be ultimately satisfied. And one way or the other, every guilty deed will be dealt with, whether in separation from God for forever, from the unbeliever, or from those who believe in Jesus, that those sins would have been dealt with by his sacrifice on the cross on Good Friday. We love you, Lord, and help us, to, help us tonight to share these things with our children, to embrace them for ourselves, and to come back to celebrate together Jesus' resurrection. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.